lyssnare. Här har ni Ingemar Fast, konstnärlig ledare för litteraturscenen på Kulturhuset Stadsteatern. Författaren Rachel Kask äntrade internationell författarscen den 7 november 2018 tillsammans med sin kollega Jenny Thunedal. Lyssna noga på detta samtal. Rachel Kusk, welcome to Stockholm. Uh, I'm very happy to be here with you tonight to talk about your outline trilogy, the novels Outline, Transit and Kudos. And like Ingmar said, two of these books are already translated into Swedish by Rebecca Alsberg. And the, the third one is coming in April. Uh, the novels, probably many of you have read them, and <laughs> you definitely know this, but they are narrated by a woman, Faye, who, unlike many other first-person narrators, spends her time listening, watching and observing as she moves through the world. In the first novel, she travels to Athens to teach a writing workshop. In the second, she is in London renovating a house. And in the third, she travels again to a literary festival in a city in the south of Europe. And something quite rare has happened with these novels. The conversation about them has not only focused on psychology, morale, credibility, opinions, values or biography belonging to either writer or characters. <laughs> But a lot of attention has, for once, been given to literary form and style, point of view, narrative strategies, even sentence formation, have become an intrinsic part of what people talk about when they talk about these novels. To me, that seems a rare feat, and I am grateful for it. Uh, when describing your trilogy, it's easy to find yourself producing a lot of negation. There is no plot, there is no narrative arch, even though I think there is. Faye, the woman who is the narrator, is also not a narrator. She's not the speaker, she's not the center of her own attention. She does not take action all the time. She is perhaps not the obvious hero in this great tale that is her life. Could you say something about all this negation? Because it seems like it's an important part of the work. Uh, it's like a resistance or refusal. Was this part of the writing process and why was it necessary? Um, so I'm mildly distressed also when those negatives yeah. occur. Um, because as a litany of, <laughs> you know, when you're told various things that, that, that something is not, um, it implies failure um, or at least difficulty or some special difficulty. And um, to my mind, what I did um, was very simple and it was not to negate but to invert, to, to turn the inside of the book onto the outside. Um, and so to me, all of the things that are apparently missing <laughs> are still there. Uh, they just occupy a different space and the space that they occupy is in the reader. Um, so I use 
and as I say, it was a, it was a, not quite a moment of realization, but a, a technical, a period of deep technical thought about how narratives work and why they were failing, they were not <laughs> this, they were not that, um, why they malfunctioned, why you couldn't tell the truth in these structures, why if you tried to tell the truth, it would make people angry. Um, I, you know, I received a great deal of that anger in you know, other parts of my writing life and sometimes you know, this response to that has been constructed as me being very upset and <laughs> deciding to write a book when no one can get at me because, you know, I make myself unavailable. Um, but in fact, it really wasn't that. It was trying to understand um, quite what this uh, malfunction that seemed to me to, to uh, mislead writer and reader and to, be al to become almost... Um, Pornography, I suppose. That's what, where I felt narrative culture had got to. Um, that the reader was in a, a pornographic relationship with the writer um, and was having all sorts of things, all sorts of worlds that, that neither writer nor reader had ever inhabited or would ever inhabit, sort of put in their head and, um, and sort of live there in this fake vision. Um, so I suppose that was the thing I realized that I needed to uh, use what the reader already knew mm -hmm. and not re-explain it to them. <laughs> and that seemed to me where the pornography happened in narrative was, was even if you're saying Jane stared out of the kitchen window and uh, then went and got a glass of water and then d you're, you're doing something that I realized was not morally wrong exactly, but but artistically amoral. Um, it, it's it's a repetition of something that it's a reliving of something that the reader knows perfectly well about. So so why do they have to imagine it again? Um, what happens when they do imagine it again? You know, how far do they desert their own life? Um, Anyway, so that was my strategy. And of course, when I finished the book mm. and saw what it was, I thought there is no way anyone will ever read it <laughs> because it, it asks for you to do something different from what, what you normally do. Yeah, it, do, it does put you in a, in a position of extreme and unusual self-awareness, or at least it does that to me. But were you not worried about... I mean, you thought no one would read it, but... but Every writer wants to be read. Even poets want people to read their work. Well, I, I, yeah. <laughs> um, I think that's where my quite harsh experiences before Outline came, came in quite useful. Uh, I, I mean, one of my child has just gone to university and, and um, one of the things that she talks about and, and that is part of young people going to university is, is that they um, are very shocked by <laughs> the fact that there are maybe some people who aren't very nice or, or you know, they're shocked by various realities. Um, 
And you know, I often say to her, "Well, I didn't feel that when I went to university because I already knew that people weren't very nice, and, you know, because I'd gone to a difficult boarding school." And and I think the same is true of my work that uh, I was so used to being criticised and attacked um, that that I was free. Uh, I, I could say what I liked. Uh, I could do what I liked, and I didn't rely on approval. Um, from anybody. Um, so, and indeed, I was telling you earlier that when I submitted the manuscript to my editor, she said, no. I don't understand this, I don't like it, and I don't want to publish it. Um, and that was sort of what I thought, okay, that was kind of what I expected. So, mm. um. But you talked about uh, wanting to tell the truth. Uh, and I've been thinking a lot about truth, realism, and honesty reading your books. Uh, and I was thinking for, that there's this interesting thing where the, the people who speak to Faye, they are in a way coming across as honest, but they're not necessarily telling the truth. Mm. The truth is somewhere else in in these novels, mm. right? Uh, could you say something about well, where it's, the truth? It's a, um, I mean, I suppose another part of what I thought about technically in constructing the books was the way that character is still used in a narrative. And uh, I thought, do people actually have characters anymore? Is that still something, is it still around? You know, is it still in the world? Or, or in fact, are we... Um, and I mean, it may be that this point is also a point about um, the therapeutic process and that maybe being the end of character uh, the, the the disgorging or, or sort of disburdening you know of, of your life story to, to a person listening um, nonetheless it it's I felt that there was much more to be had in a, a sort of in this I suppose, interface of, of t talking, which, yeah, as I say, it, there it was in therapy and, that, and people go off and sort of do that. But actually, I found that much more in, in society, the, the, the use of trauma, personal trauma, in uh, the, the spoken space was something quite shared and, and that that was something that drew people in and out of each other's lives in a, in a way that character, you know, d had nothing to do with and, and that something more oceanic, I guess, mm. uh, was replacing um, this these conventions of Mrs. Bennett said, you know, and she speaks in character and then someone else says something and even dialogue. I, I thought, actually, you know, is that still around? Um, so So once you start to... Think actually, I can throw all of the everything, everything, uh, even and especially creating a narrator, because actually, so much of a of a modern novel, say, is is a long attempt by the author to convince the reader that that the book is not based on the author's own personal experience, and, and you know why is that? reassuring. Uh, the author says, right, I'm going to pretend that, that I'm a doctor and <laughs> I'm going to tell you all about how much research I've done about being a doctor. Um, so actually the best thing is to have a narrator 
where the reader sort of thinks, okay, it's a woman, vaguely um, agrees, with, you know, with what what I think this writer is, so that they don't spend any time at all thinking about that. Um, so the book got shorter and shorter as, yeah. <laughs> as I was getting yeah, rid of. Yeah. Um, but uh, but you were also talking about this pornographic notion, and now you mentioned trauma because one of many things I've thought about is that your books are actually full of suffering. People express their pain, they feel pain. Uh, and there is trauma there, but there is very little um, extreme suffering. Mm. Uh, and to me that seems a contrast to a lot of uh, fiction that seems just almost... I mean, I love fiction, I love literature, but sometimes I get this feeling that literature is like a machine that consumes S extreme suffering in order to, mm. to stay alive mm. or something. And your books don't. Uh, mm. And yet they they make you extremely aware. I think there's one character who, who talks about this, the fact that it's actually Lewis, the writer, who says that it's traumatic to just be alive. Um, and is, is that one of the truths that you want to... Um, well, it's it's definitely an artistic truth, um, and, and my artistic practice and my teaching of writing when I've done it has always been very simple. And which is, you know, you don't deal in the exception; you deal in the rule. You deal in the thing that is true all the time, not the thing that that is extreme. And and so many would be writers, uh, and I assume readers also think that a good story, you know, is, is, and to an extent, I suppose, a good story is an extraordinary occurrence, an unusual occurrence, but, but it, it leaves you, again, it's one of these things that leads you away from yourself. Um, and I wanted, uh, well, I wanted the opposite of that. Um, so, in fact, I, I probably in terms of the content of the novels, uh, I would definitely exclude anything that was too exciting <laughs> or, or extreme um, because that's not artistically uh, what I think those things imperil um, the, the reality of, of, of a work. Mm. But there's something very, I mean, to me, these works, there's a lot of humor in them. They're very fun to read and there's a lot of pleasure, but they're also quite dark. But it seems that also what you're saying now, that you, there's, there's this hope that people actually want to be aware, that they want to come closer to the truth. Is that, is that yeah, where I mean, you I, come I think, from as a writer? I think that um, the challenging of content is part of what I, I was interested in doing and the fact that even so there's the caveat but they're quite dark um, even that I, I think I, I don't want mm -hmm. the, the world divided into dark and light because it suggests that that um, it suggests a willful blindness and um, I think so much of what is difficult in our world now is feeling um, that, that our, 
our inner life, our subjectivity, um, is in some kind of very uneasy relationship with um, the idea of other people's suffering. And I mean, as the world becomes <laughs> a more and more divided place, you know, that idea of how how can you um, be a person who, who's, you know, how do you disqualify yourself, in a sense, from being allowed to care about this, that, or the other without being called hypocritical, um, without what you represent in terms of, I don't know, bourgeois values or money or uh, being held against you. Um, and I think that that actually our, if, if only we can see this interface as being one in which actually you know, suffering is, is something we all have in common <laughs> and, and not see it as darkness, but see it as um, relatability. Um, it, it, well, I think it, uh, you know, all the worries that, that the anxieties that are so current about um, our inner lives and, and social media, say, or, or, you know, there's always a sort of fear <laughs> that, that, I don't know, we're doing something wrong in, in, in terms of, of personal morality. And um, it, it seems that claiming kinship, um, you know, that a woman in a very privileged world like this one can have a child, for instance, and, and feel terrible feelings that, that a woman in a, a third world, you know, might, might also, that's kinship. It's not, you know, me sitting in my Stockholm apartment thinking I really mustn't admit that I feel these things um, and they have nothing to do with the feelings of, of another person. Um, so I suppose that... Mm. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid of suffering. And even if it's called dark, I think, well, you know, the one thing I bothered to do always, but especially with these books, is create um, a, a lot of charm on the surface yeah. and a lot of um, writing in the major key. Uh, because I think that's, that's kind of all we've got. Um, you don't want to deny what's true. But you should make the effort to to at least make the the surface a, a, a pleasant place to mm. be, a beautiful place to be. It's a kind of politeness, I suppose. Um, but yeah, it's slightly at odds, mm. I guess. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, um, I wanted to ask you about. I mean, these novels have rightly so been praised as something new and inventional and radical, but. But to me, it also seems like they have something to do with an old form like allegory. I couldn't get that notion out of my head. That it's, I think it becomes stronger through the, as the tri trilogy continues. Why can't I say <laughs> this word that I'm going to have to say a million it's fine. times? You can make a new uh, word. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, I mean, they make me. I think part of the experience of reading them is being confronted with a kind of ambivalence allegory. I'm not sure uh, what to do with with the examples. I'm not sure if they are allegories or not. But is allegory a form that makes sense to you at all when thinking about these? 
Um, I suppose it implies some special separation from reality, and I've been quite careful. I mean, okay, in Kudos, I, I, I suppose because I thought I've been sitting here for six years doing this, and I'm, you know, I'm going to make some jokes, you know, as I, <laughs> as I sort of get to the end, and and. Um, and we have, you know, the narrator is interviewed by numerous people, and these interviews become slightly unreal. And slightly, yeah. Um, and I've been very careful not to do that, uh, and, you know, until sort of that point, because mm. I didn't ever. Want, and, and I mean, occasionally this results in, you know, me being asked the question, you know, by an interviewer, say. Um, are you a really good listener? Do you think people really talk to each other on buses or, you know, in this way? And so it's a very literal... And although I think, OK, you've possibly not understood what I'm trying to do, I, I'm also quite pleased because I think, well, the, the books have retained a reality um, that, that although there's something <laughs> otherworldly in them, um, that it's not impossible that... that uh, that situation could occur, and so that that reality, I've hung on to it um, as much as I can, despite, as you say, the sort of improbability. Um, and I, I think, in terms of a literary model, um, uh, the Odyssey was was right. my my key. Um, is where I started thinking, um, which relates to a lot of other thinking I'd already done about why we feel pain. In, in institutionalized ways, um, we get married, we get divorced. You know, what, why does our pain come in this? You know, what are we? <laughs> are we ourselves, or are we part of of a, this social machine that's going on and on? And, and but you know, we're both is is the answer. But you know, trying to find something before. Christian narrative before the Christian idea of narrative, which was the real thing that that I mean I've attacked it in in sort of various ways all through my mm -hmm. writing life. You know, is the reason I'm unhappy because of okay, not because of Jesus <laughs> exactly, but yeah. but because of uh, you know these. And I was brought up with them. I was brought up a Catholic. I was uh, you know I was shaped by um, that conception of of. The world, and by that story, uh, that Christian story, and so I found great liberty in the Greeks, in uh, you know this this wild <laughs> world of of everything, good and evil, always being mixed together, and so much of what I learned about writing, I learned from that model, um, and so I guess the Odyssey, the Odyssey being the the sort of uber text of uh, text rather of trauma of yeah. okay something happens and then you go and tell someone else about mm -hmm. it you tell them your story um and and that was one you know outline that was one of the reasons it was set in Athens and um that, as a to try and sort of clarify that point which in fact nobody even noticed so <laughs> mm. Mm. Uh. I would like to talk a little bit about Faye. Um, I think spending a lot of time with Faye recently have, has sort of done things to, 
to my walking around in the, the world. I saw a poster yesterday, for instance. It was promoting a school for the performing arts. And it was a beautiful photo of this fairly young woman. She was wearing a tank top and trousers, and she was sort of centers, placed center stage. And she was so full of expression. She was screaming something. Uh, and for some reason, and I think Faye has to do with that, <laughs> That poster annoyed me, uh, for for because I I feel that it was I mean of course women should be able to stand and scream, center stage. But there's also almost an instruction of how to be a woman artist or writer or how to be a woman in the arts. You have to be expressive, emotional. You have to show your body and you have to be the center of attention. And Faye is none of that, uh, <laughs> at least when I meet her. Uh, and I've read that many, many readers feel that she becomes anonymous. But to me, it's about the fact that you don't actually get to view her. You s I mean, you're completely close to her. You see through her gaze, but you don't get to to look at her. Uh, and how did you think about creating Faye as as this woman who who is sort of well, she is protected. I think. Mm. I mean, that's the big the loyalty, maybe in the mm. books, is about protecting her. Well, I mean, it was something that that happened I mean obviously had to begin from the beginning and that beginning was uh, me realizing that I was not going to physically describe this person and that I was not going to describe her through other people physically either mm. and that nobody was going to although they would interact with her nobody was going to give us a picture of her and I don't know how whether I sort of decided that or realized that it just was not it wasn't allowed in these rules that <laughs> that I and I the first bits of writing this felt it felt so extraordinary and I mean I'm not somebody who has been a particularly um, I don't feel I've used the body Maybe I should have used it more, but I, I've never felt uh, comfortable invading um, the, the human uh, in, in that in any way that that because I guess my rules for writing are are the same as my rules for living, and and um, you know I I wouldn't do that myself. <laughs> I I wouldn't claim to know somebody physically. Uh, in, in, in the way that the act of description um, suggests that, that you do. And um, again, it was another thing, out the window it goes. Um, and, and this one, I thought, okay, th this feels quite good. Um, it, it's amazing that I've, I've dodged around it. It's almost like a thing that I've avoided, sort of avoided the draft, you know, of, of physicality in my books. And occasionally people have, you know, that's been a criticism of why don't you write about sensuality about and I thought well why don't you know it's obviously because I my terrible Catholic childhood and this, <laughs> but in fact it's it's a 
it's a reticence that I realized I could stand by and that if I didn't put her, if I didn't expose her like that, then she was going to play a completely different role in the narrative and there would be no seeking after um, her substance in that way and you would have to, if you were going to continue reading, live with that and that seemed a huge thing to take away. Mm. I really realised when I was doing it what a big thing it was to take that away from the book but indeed it was liberating. Um, it, it was a true experience of genderless almost or, or the contemporary idea of gender which as I say you know to me all these things are veering into pornography all the time um, in, in narrative and, and you know the narrative has now become the property of films um, of the sort of Hollywood and so you see where that road leads and, and so it felt very pleasing to um, refuse to do it Maybe you should read a little bit from yeah. Francis now, is that, is that okay? Are we going to read the beginning? Yeah. Because there was another, there was the Marsden-Hartley bit as well. But, um, yeah. uh, astrologer? Go, go for yeah. the okay. beginning. So I'm just going to read a little bit from the beginning of the book. An astrologer emailed me to say she had important news for me concerning events in my immediate future. She could see things that I could not. My personal details had come into her possession and had allowed her to study the planets for their information. She wished me to know that a major transit was due to occur shortly in my sky. This information was causing her great excitement when she considered the changes it might represent. For a small fee, she would share it with me and enable me to turn it to my advantage. She could sense, the email continued, that I had lost my way in life that I sometimes struggled to find meaning in my present circumstances and to feel hope for what was to come. She felt a strong personal connection between us, and while she couldn't explain the feeling, she knew too that some things ought to defy explanation. She understood that many people closed their minds to the meaning of the sky above their heads, but she firmly believed I was not one of those people. I did not have the blind belief in reality that made others ask for concrete explanations. She knew that I had suffered sufficiently to begin asking certain questions, to which as yet I had received no reply. But the movements of the planets represented a zone of infinite reverberation to human destiny. Perhaps it was simply that some people could not believe they were important enough to figure there. The sad fact, she said, is that in this era of science and unbelief, we have lost the sense of our own significance. We have become cruel to ourselves and others because we believe that ultimately we have no value. What the planets offer, she said, is nothing less than the chance to regain faith in the grandeur of the human. How much more dignity and honor, how much kindness and responsibility and respect would we bring to our dealings with one, one another if we believed that each and every one of us had a cosmic importance? She felt that I, of all people, could see the implications here for improvements in world peace and prosperity, not to mention the revolution and enhanced concept of fate could bring about in the personal side of things. She hoped I would forgive her for contacting me in this way and for speaking so openly. As she had already said, she felt a strong personal connection between us that had encouraged her to say what was in her heart. 
It seemed possible that the same computer algorithms that had generated this email had also generated the astrologer herself. Her phrases were too characterful, and the note of character was repeated too often. She was too obviously based on a human type to be herself human. As a result, her sympathy and concern were slightly sinister. Yet for those same reasons, they also seemed impartial. A friend of mine, depressed in the wake of his divorce, had recently admitted that he often felt moved to tears by the concern for his health and well-being expressed in the phraseology of adverts and food packaging and by the automated voices on trains and buses, apparently anxious that he might miss his stop. He actually felt something akin to love, he said, for the female voice that guided him while he was driving his car. There has been a great harvest, he said, of language and information from life, and it may have become the case that the faux human was growing more substantial and more relational than the original, that there was more tenderness to be had from a machine than from one's fellow man. After all, the mechanized interface was the distillation not of one human, but of many. Many astrologers had had to live, in other words, for this one example to have been created. What was soothing, he believed, was the very fact that this oceanic chorus was affixed in no one person, that it seemed to come from everywhere and nowhere. He recognized that a lot of people found this idea maddening, but for him, the erosion of individuality was also the erosion of the power to hurt. Thank you. Uh, you said before that uh, uh, you don't necessarily think that these books are dark, but but they are, and perhaps especially transit, but all of them, they, cruelty is a theme, definitely, uh, that comes into play in many different ways. Uh, it's also there in, in what you just read. Uh, and it's one of the things that makes reading them sometimes dark is that there is this observation of human cruelty uh, without judgment. Or is there judgment? I wanted to ask you about that. Um, I think there isn't judgment so much as um, maybe a, a, a recognition of or assertion of the idea that um, people are blind, whether willfully or not, sometimes to cruelty, their own and other people's, and that pain, you know, I think these ideas still, uh, you know, even though I don't think we could accuse ourselves of living in a puritanical <laughs> age, um, that there still are uh, many taboos um, in, in the expression of, of feeling, um, and especially when that feeling is um, pain. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I know that because I've violated those taboos a lot, and it's made people very angry. Um, and so, uh, and you get accused of cruelty yourself <laughs> um, for noticing these things about other people. Um, so I think there's a I mean, I guess I've tried 
often in my writing to see uh, a sort of honor in or, or courage that, that is a sort of knightly type of thing <laughs> that has to do with duty and in people refusing to admit their pain uh, or, or disguising their um, you know and, and in as an example the the area of motherhood where I felt it was necessary to to express some things about ambivalence mm. and um, you know it was never the case that I disrespected or you know the women who said I'm loving it because <laughs> I thought well you that's really brave to say I'm because I know what it what it's like it's really hard and to say I'm loving it is courageous and uh, so I, I've always respected that but I suppose in these books, I've come a bit closer to saying, well, hang on, you know, where does it actually get us? Uh, does it merely, you know, not to recognize and, and articulate our pain, the things we find difficult, does it merely mean that we're going to hand a set of images to our children that are just the same, that are saying, oh, having children's really great, and you're, you know, or, you know, in many, many, many other examples? Um, trying that to is kind of cruel. Maybe. Yes, yeah. yeah. And trying to, to put this um, vocabulary, this, this palette of, of the personal into, uh, into reality as something that can be easily spoken about. Um, you know, I think, I think it's true to say that I've searched for a long time for a language in which to do that. And... To begin with, I chose memoir because I thought, okay, if I'm talking about these things, I have to have a form that, that owns up to it, you know, where I look like I'm owning up to this stuff myself so that I, I can use myself as an example um, so that I'm not looking at someone else saying, oh, that person's feeling that, but I'm not. You know, I had to say, I, I, this is what I feel. And um, whether, in a sense, it didn't matter whether I felt it or not. Um, but that that still uh, created the space of taboo and of separation and of distancing, really, um, and saying, "Well, I, you know, I lucky she's mm. put her name to this because now we can say that you know those feelings belong over there and they don't have anything to do with me." Um, so I think you know another thing that's odd in the structure of these books is that that level of per the personal is so integrated with everything else that happens um, and it, indeed you know it is the element of the book that that flows in and out of people talking and and indeed I mean there are certain points in the writing of it where I thought actually <laughs> grammatically I, I don't know <laughs> sort of how to keep on top of this because it would often be a person talking about something somebody else Oh, had yeah. said to them, yeah. and 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 indeed that per that person also reporting from an even, um, and, and yeah, the, the, the making sentences out of that is quite difficult. But um, it it pleased me to to you know how um, malleable and and easy to work with that this substance was. Once once I'd started doing it, um, it felt really natural and and. And very positive. Um, that, so yeah, again, I mean, the, the sort of darkness word um, mm. frightens me. I, I mm. suppose um, because I don't, I don't want. I fear 
the the, the disowning that that is Im implied in in um, and to me the heart of what I'm doing is um, and we started this exchange talking about cruelty um, to to see it to be able to to actually see it um, requires some adjustment of one's sense of self self and others um, and that that I guess that a path towards that adjustment is is what I'm trying to to make. Um. Yeah, and it's extraordinary that there is. I mean, you you feel a strong belief and you get a strong belief that literature is a place that can actually achieve this. When you read this these books, well, it should yeah. be. Yeah, it. it um, but it can't. You know, so I was saying to someone earlier that um, so much of the early experience of writing these books, I mean, when I was at the beginning of Outline, was the feeling of driving a car down a, a cul-de-sac, a dead end, and, and that would be the sentence I was writing and realizing I had to reverse all the way out of that sentence <laughs> because it, you know, it wasn't the right... And the alternative is a sentence that, that is like Fifth Avenue on Manhattan, you know, the everyone you know goes down these sentences and they at what point do they start to tell us what we feel and what what you know what a sentence is what a feeling is even what and what a sequence of feelings might be and so choosing not to write those sentences um was fundamental in in um starting to un unpick um some of this stuff anyway um and i mean the the chorus is the yeah there was a chorus in what you read the o oceanic chorus that is the big the big answer to this isn't it because then i mean it's in the sentences but it's also in the shifting there there's never one person who sort of owns the no the truth or the cruelty or the position as victim or hurts uh. well and, and the intention with that is is not to create character as a, as a hiding place a refuge where you can as i say create distance between yourself and and other things and um i mean somebody i was talking to earlier made the point that um the, there is a criticism which i haven't particularly read because i don't tend to read Reviews or, or that uh, uh, that Faye herself is cruel and cold, and he said, "I think that's being said about you because you're a woman, and uh, women are, you know, a female narrator is is meant to be something <laughs> that, and, and in fact, Camus is allowed to." have all sorts of alienated men wandering around the place not caring about anything and <laughs> and that's fine um and i think there's possibly some truth in that um yeah it, it's hard to get to because she's not a caretaker as such in in the she doesn't take care of the reader or the no story. and i mean those are yeah. very very difficult politics mm. to to mm. walk your way through and in terms of structuring the books you know, I knew that I could not have this person looking after her children in in these books because that that was a role that she 
plays, presumably when she's not in these books. Um, yeah. but, uh, but and you have to imagine that you have to see that these books are, you know, short time frames, a few days, mm. spaced out by a few years, and it so happens that she's on a business trip or work, not mm. business trip, but a work trip, uh, or in transit that the builders are in so the children have gone to stay with their dad you know there's their interludes where, where she's alone but very easily it all looks like someone who doesn't you know look after her children for instance and and you know those kinds of judgment um judgments are are well they're everywhere and they they inform even you know the most well-meaning readers mm. experience you think well why isn't she looking after her children you know um yeah but i mean you i don't i don't have children but you also feel a lot of sympathy for her when the children are phoning her up from a from far away and they're lost or they're in trouble and they i mean to me it's it's an unusually maybe realistic uh rendering of what motherhood also can be. Mm. Uh, well, and, and I mean, part of what I've tried to do is put, make everybody's story into, into one yeah. <laughs> so that you don't actually feel these oppositions. And, and um, but yeah, I mean, the, the, in the end, you know, where I got to in the third book was, um, I was left with really quite a uh, significant amount of anger, uh, my own anger, that I had not <laughs> uh, used anywhere in this writing. And um, that, that was quite interesting. Uh, and almost the, the discipline of uh, creating all of this without anger, which was what I had absolutely promised myself I, I would do. Um, it, it, it led me in the end, and I mean, we were talking earlier about the end of Kudos being uh, fairly shocking. <laughs> and, and that, I suppose, was uh, the, the punch in the face that I had to um, administer, I guess, that, that after all, a lot of calmness <laughs> and not being angry, um, in the end I did have to confront some of the um, sources of anger. Uh, and I, I found that they were indeed in, in, um, in gender and in yeah. uh, the male dynamic. Um, and what it does to, I mean, a lot of kudos is, uh, it is much more about women than any of the other books, but it, it, it's also, there's a lot of stuff about women artists and um, what kind of recognition a woman can, can possibly get and how different her life um, is from, from the male life and, and how long will that be the the case. Um, so so yeah, there the, the, there was still a feeling that that the carefulness that I had to to show in in writing these books 
it was still an imposition in a sense. Um, Maybe, do you want to read from Kudos a little? About men and women? This is a preview. <laughs> the world premiere in yeah. uh, the Swedish premiere. Um, so this is a, a bit of conversation from a scene in a restaurant where uh, a woman called Sophia is talking about her um, relationships with men and um, her relationship with her son. Uh, she's a divorced person and her son is uh, quite young. And she's talking to a group of men sitting around a restaurant table. I have known many men, Sophia said, resting her slender arms on the table, whose white cloth was littered with crumpled napkins and wine stains and half-eaten pieces of bread, from many different parts of the world. And the men of this nation, she said, blinking her painted eyes and smiling, are the sweetest, but also the most childlike. Behind every man is his mother, she said, who made so much fuss of him he will never recover from it and will never understand why the rest of the world doesn't make the same fuss of him, particularly the woman who has replaced his mother and who he can neither trust nor forgive for replacing her. These men like nothing better than to have a child, she said, because then the whole cycle is repeated and they feel comfortable. Men from other places are different, she said, but in the end, neither better nor worse. They are better lovers, but less courteous, or they are more confident, but less considerate. The English man, she said, looking at me, is in my experience the worst, because he is neither a skilled lover nor a sweet child, and because his idea of a woman is something made of plastic, not flesh. The English man is sent away from his mother, and so he wants to marry his mother, and perhaps even to be his mother. And while he is usually polite and reasonable to women, as a stranger would be, he doesn't understand what they are. After my son found the photographs in his father's house, she went on, and made the observation that I was not the same person I had been, not even in the molecules of my skin, I became for a while very confused and depressed. It suddenly felt as if all my efforts since the divorce to keep things the same, to keep my own life recognizable to me and to my son, were in fact false, because underneath the surface not one thing remained as it was. Yet his words also made me feel that for the first time someone had understood what had happened, because while I had always told the story to myself and others as a story of war, in fact it was simply a story of change. And it was this change that had been left unexamined and unremarked on, until my son saw it in the photographs and noticed it. While he was away for those few days visiting his father, she said, I had arranged to spend time with a man and had invited him for the weekend to our apartment. I have, I've had to be careful about allowing my son to see me with other men for the reason that he might innocently mention something to his father, who would undoubtedly respond with the most vitriolic aggression. This necessity for caution and secrecy, she said, has also made these interludes of passion more exciting. They are a kind of reward I offer myself, and I often spend time thinking about them and planning them, even sometimes when I am with my son and for whatever reason am feeling bored. But on this occasion, she said, once my son had gone to his father's and I was waiting in my apartment, I heard the footsteps on the stairs and the key turning in the lock and I suddenly became confused as to which of the men I've known in my life was about to walk through the door. 
It seemed to me in that moment, she said, that I had made too much of the distinctions between these men, when at the time the whole world had appeared to depend on whether I was with one rather than another. I realized that I had believed in them, she said, and in the ecstasy or agony they caused me, but now I could barely recall why and could barely separate them from one another in my mind. I mean, there are a few women in kudos who sort of come to to realize that they're finished with men. They don't need men in the way that they used to. And I connected that to something that I think is actually not in these books, but in in aftermath, or maybe in both. Uh, but the question of whether you need the attention of men or the authority of men as a woman. Mm. Uh, and even though the there's not like this big happy ending where all the women are free. <laughs> uh, uh, there is definitely, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there is definitely a, a kind of a freeing of in that conversation uh, at the end when mm. they are all yes. sitting yeah. together. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and that, but it's um, it's not really a freeing. It's uh, it, it's. Um, What's the word? It's a freeing like the the person's free when they get out of prison after being there unfairly for 30 yeah. years. <laughs> it's a very yeah. partial freedom. Um, and it's saying, I have, I've been destroyed, really, and I'm going to take what's left of myself, and you're not going to touch it. And that is very much the... Um, you know, one of the things about ending these books was... Um, a question about the cycle of female life. And, you know, Faye at, at the end is, you know, she disappears back under the surface, uh, not just because the book's over, but because she, she's she's married again. Her, you know, she chooses to re-enter. Um, mm. But... but this question of of what um, femininity is outside of its or beyond or after its um, representations in society, its cycles, its roles, um, you know, the, the leaving of children, um, possibly even the leaving of men. It's it's you know, I think the effect I wanted to get in that scene at the end, near the end of the women mm. was literally a stage set almost yeah. <laughs> being dismantled. So, okay, the sh you know, the show is finally over. This show, is, this, it is not being performed again. Um, and the question of what, what, what there is then, um, I guess is the question that, that I left myself with at the end of the books um, because I don't know the answer and um, I'm, I intend to find the answer uh, but you know that that empty space mm. um, it, it's unusual it's rare uh, in this very overcrowded world um, where all of our experiences are you know def pretty defined um, this this great empty space uh, 
of feminine life after this particular age. And, and you know, so of course, many people have sort of put a few things in that space and talked about it, and um, feminism has has sort of popped up there. And and but but really, um, it, it is. Uh, but so much of that talk is also about the body again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, whereas, I mean, one of the things in Kudos that I think, you know, I found helpful, even though I wrote it, <laughs> still found it helpful, and I will think about more, is um, what happens to the female artist or, or creator in, in that, you know, this authority that, that can come. And again, I was talking to someone earlier about um, the, 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 the sort of patting on the head of the woman, and indeed, you know, I was saying, kudos the woman who's become either too old or too ugly or possibly even dead enough not to be a sort of public danger anymore so everyone can now give her a prize or, <laughs> or sort of say, you're really important, um, you're Louise Bourgeois, you're 92, and now finally we're going to say, you know. Um, so sort of what that, what the possibilities of, of that are. Um, and I mean, anybody who followed or admired or was formed partly by Doris Lessing, as I was, um, can only look at that as, you know, the classic, yeah. uh, appallingly brutal um, female trajectory, which actually took her away from her own gifts, in, in mm. a sense. It, 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 it uh, damaged her work. Um, and, you know, the, the sight of this woman at the end being given, yeah. you know, the Nobel Prize at the end of all of this, and you, think, well, you know, if you'd given it to her a bit earlier, she might have actually, <laughs> you know, had a better time. Um, and and uh, so... These are yeah. These are the sort of questions that, as I say, the book doesn't really answer them. Um, mm. But but I'm I'm interested in that space. Um. I want to ask you uh, a final question, actually, because we need to stop. I have many questions, but you write uh, that freedom is a home you leave once and you can never go back to. And I'm not going to sort of hold you to this, but uh, I wanted to ask you if you could say something about what does it mean and what's that mean for you as a writer <coughs> if freedom is a home that you leave once and can never go back to? I mean, if if this is freedom, is there another freedom? You're sort of talking about that now, I think. Um, freedom after freedom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think uh, the word freedom is freedom from consciousness, um, freedom from awareness, mm. is what I'm talking about in that line. Um, that, that once you've left it, <laughs> you've, you've committed uh, numerous sins to leave it, mm. presumably. And, um, you know, the search for freedom as I see it in um, a lot of these books is is uh, littered with 
mistakes and failures and, and people desperately trying to free themselves and in, in struggling to free themselves, damaging you know, everything around them and, and um, you know, what would the original freedom look like? And uh, I, so I guess I concluded that it, it was something you, you were born with, you were born free and you made yourself unfree or were made unfree by other people and that is uh, what life <laughs> possibly is and the person who at a certain point realizes it and sets about trying to free themselves. Um, you know, these books are full of uh, a lot of those stories. Um, mm. So yeah, it's a, it's a sad uh, <laughs> idea, that one. But what about, I mean, what about artistic freedom? It's a strange notion, but you get a sense that someone was free writing these books, mm. <laughs> you know? There's a lot of discipline, of course, and there's a lot of hard work, but there's also a sense of freedom. Mm. Uh, but is that like a, is that something that you feel that you have now sort of achieved and can bring with you as you go on as a writer? Well, I mean, there's, there's becoming free, yeah. which yes, I certainly have done. And, and yes, it has entailed um, a lot of difficulty and sometimes Again, in you know, it's not like I'm being interviewed all the time, but but I often am. And sometimes in these interviews, I, f I feel someone saying, well, you know, why have you made your career so difficult for yourself? You know, why, <laughs> why have all these difficult things happened to you? And I sort of think, oh, you know, mm. have, have, could it just all have been really easy? And I could have just like, had a really good time and really enjoyed writing and written some <laughs> books that other people liked and it was all fine. Um, <laughs> But it has been this freeing of myself, uh, and that's how I've um, developed as a as an artist. I guess was um, paying very close attention to to um, living, and uh, the same issues in living and in writing have have. I mean, those things have, have always gone side by side in my life um, so getting free is one thing staying free is another mm. thing and mm. uh, what you do with your freedom and maybe I'm sure somewhere there's a lot about freedom somewhere in this book which I think says um, well it's in transit where the hairdresser says yeah. freedom is overrated yeah. and uh, <laughs> and that you know is a um, it's a good point. Um, what, what, what is this thing uh, that... that um, so I think possibly the word that, that will come to replace freedom for me is power and what it is, who has it and how to exercise it. And for, I think, as a, as a word to be going into, as I say, this very empty bit of womanhood, um, 50s and, you know, however long I'm allowed to stick around. Um, power is a really weird sort of thing to be going after. In, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I think um, that's probably what's, what's there. Um, you often hear uh, male artists saying that they're completely uninterested in power, mm. especially ones who have a lot of power. Yes. Mm. <laughs> mm. Um, mm. I mean, a lot of transit is, is about 
the people that we think we have power over who are yeah. children and uh, how much of what we are is revealed in, in our exercise of that power, even if we're not really conscious of it or, or aware of it. Um, so, you know, other, other kinds of power. I mean, parenthood is such a lesson in power and responsibility uh, and pay, having to pay. You will pay, you know, always uh, for misuse of power in relations with children one way or another. And um, it's a good... Uh, it's, a, it's a very clear matrix, that one. Um, is that true? You know, do any of us feel at the moment that there is any justice in, you know, uh, in terms of our sort of wider world and the, the uses and misuses of power? Um, so I think that makes personal power a really interesting yeah. subject for the future. But uh, I think that what is so great about these books are also the, the fact that because I think there's a lot of taboos and one taboo for a woman writer is to think so much that, and these books are really I mean, you have the power to take to, to bake yeah and, yeah <laughs> and hopefully that is a, f a freedom and a power that you can sort of move on with yeah yeah because I love that about them oh thank you um thank you Rachel Kosky thank you <laughs>